The HERE podcast is all about reclaiming your power and reconnecting with your mind and body. By releasing our stories and the power they have had over our lives and creating a compassionate and supportive community, we can bring love, understanding, awareness, and healing to ourselves and to all who need it most. Join me in saying, enough is enough. I own my power. I am ready for the next chapter of my life, and it will be the most amazing one yet. Hello, and welcome everybody back to another episode of Here Podcast. I'm so happy that you're joining me again today. And today I have a special guest. His name is Brandon. And he um, so graciously, when I reached out to him and asked if he'd be willing to share his story, he said yes. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing his story. Brandon um, struggled with drug addiction and mental illness. And he overcame all of that and is is very happy and, and living a joyful life now. So I really wanted Brandon to come onto the show and, and share his story. So thank you so much, Brandon, for being here with me today. Super excited to be here. Oh, wonderful. So if we can begin, I would love to hear your story. So what happened um, that brought you to a place where you were, um, you know, uh, abusing drugs and struggling with your mental health? I would love to hear that story. Sure. Um, so I'll start out um, from when I was little. Like as a, a kid, I was a, a very good kid. Um, I really held a lot of guilt when I got in trouble with my parents. And, and guilt later on played a big pack in part in me continuing to use at times. Um, when I was about five, my parents divorced. Um, and my mom and stepdad were together and that was one dynamic and my, my dad and stepmom. Um, and it really played, um, a role in terms of the different parenting styles. Um, I guess my, my one side with my mom and my stepdad, um, I was primarily there, you know, a week at a time or not a week at a time. It was like every other Tuesday and every other week. And I went to the dad, my dad's, but the majority of the time I was there. Um, and basically with their family, um, and along the lines of my stepfathers, they had this view, you know, if we, let our children like drink some wine, um, and, uh, drink with us. We can teach them to be, you know, responsible with alcohol, um, which sounded great at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, looking back, uh, you know, two of my other brothers still struggle with addiction. So, um, it, it really had an impact. Um, that they did not even realize. They thought they were doing the right thing, so you can't blame them for that. So I think my I, I always had sips of drinks growing up, but uh, the first time I ever remember drinking, my parents had a party. I was 12 years old. I was, I was allowed to have like half a glass of champagne. There were some other kids there. Um, and once you have a glass, if no one's looking at the bottle, it's pretty easy to refill. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I soon, you know, started refilling my own glass and, you know, it's a, it's a party and there's parents don't pay a whole lot of attention. And before I knew it, I was, I was experiencing my first drunk at, at age 12. Oh, wow. Um, I, uh, I remember feeling dizzy and feeling like super comfortable and feeling like, um, you know, this is great. Um, and, uh, then I remember it was champagne and you know, whenever I drank champagne, uh, I always ended up with a hangover for my entire life. I think whenever I drank a lot of it. So at 12 years old, the next day I experienced my first hangover. Um, and I, I had an older brother, an older stepbrother from my stepdad's side. Um, and he had mentioned, um, about, medications that my stepdad had in the uh, medicine cabinet. My stepfather was a, a doctor and always had a chock full medicine cabinet for when people were sick. And um, there was Percocets at that time. So at age 12, I knew Percocet was a painkiller. And with drinking all that champagne, I was in a lot of pain. So I took Percocet for the first time at 12 years old. And... I was already sick to my stomach and of course having a, uh, an opiate like that in your stomach doesn't help. Um, but despite all the stomach issues, I, I felt really good. Um, and that was kind of like kickstarted my experimentation in the drugs. It didn't, it didn't accelerate maybe for a few months. Um, and I remember I was at, uh, my, my dad's best friend's house and they'd barbecue every weekend. And, and it wasn't his best friend, one of his best friends. And we had my friend there. Um, and I kind of knew he smoked and, and heard he did it. Um, and it wasn't something I really wanted to try at that time. Um, but he kind of talked me into it and told me that, you know, his dad smoked and my dad smoked and it's no big deal. And, uh, so we went out into the woods and I think it was a, a garden hose nozzle we smoked out of, which is hilarious. You know, thinking about it in the middle of some flat, you know, salt flat in the middle of, uh, in the kind of marsh woods where I lived. And, uh, I remember getting a little high, but not very much of it. But I remember the one thing about my dad was he he taught and parented a lot differently. Um, he taught a lot by story. So the next day, I guess word had got back to the adults that the kids went off and, and got high while they were having a, a barbecue the next time or the night before. And, uh, I remember walking through the neighborhood and my dad actually was like, Hey, I heard you might've smoked pot last yesterday. Um, did you? And I, and I lied. And the one thing is I, I always had a very good relationship with my dad and I lied and I carried that guilt. Um, I felt really guilty, but my dad talked to me about it, and, you know, said he knew that, uh, my friends smoked pot and, uh, you know, he didn't think it was a good idea and he didn't do it and all this. And of course I'd heard every which way different from my friend in terms of what our parents did. Um, and I felt a lot of guilt, but still like 
I, I really liked the way it made me feel. Um, and it was during the summer that this happened. So, um, at that point, I, uh, when I got into school, I think a month later, um, a friend of mine could get it. And next thing you know, I was buying it. And that accelerated real fast once I bought my own. Um, I went from trying it a couple times to I smoked every day and not just once a day. It turned into pretty much every chance I got. Um, and that it, it was quick. Um, in that time, I started experimenting with other stuff I could get my hands on. Um, the thing was, I went to a, a private school that was like um, almost an hour north. Um, so I spent like an hour on a bus. Um, and then also, it was perfectly normal for me to stay at a friend's come Friday and then come home Sunday. So I was away from my parents often for long periods of time. Okay. Um, so in that time frame, I started trying just about everything. So by the time I was in high school, I tried, you know, cannabis, pot, alcohol, LSD, cocaine, mushrooms, um, very early on. And at some point in ninth grade, um, my connection failed and I went from having, you know, pot every day to none. And a lot of people don't realize it, but like when you flood your system by smoking, you're flooding your, your synapses with dopamine and it feels great. Um, but when you do that so regularly, um, your body doesn't want to produce it the same. So very soon I felt like I couldn't function without it. I went into a pretty deep depression and it was like a few days a week. And I had my first like breakdown in a ninth grade. I, I went to my mom and I was like, mom, I'm an addict. And the funny thing was, is I gave off this impression of a really good kid. My parents rarely ever suspected me of anything. I was the kid that, you know, parents wanted their kids to hang out with and had no clue the majority of the time I was, I was high off my ass. Oh, wow. So I talked to my mom and, um, there was two really good friends and their parents knew my friends and, uh, we had to sit down and we all like, I was a complete mess. I I was like having a complete breakdown and they had my friends here and their parents and it was so embarrassing, but agreed not to, not to do drugs anymore. And, um, my parents started taking me to a, a psychologist at that point for depression. Um, so that was, that was my first like note that, Oh my gosh, like, I think my use is a problem. Um, but of That's course really I was amazing in, though that, so you're a freshman in high school and, you know, you, you recognize that and, and went forward to your parents to let them know that you had a problem. Yeah. I, I'm still shocked that I did that, especially <laughs> with all the guilt I held, but yeah. like they could obviously see that something was seriously like wrong because of the depression. And yeah. I looked like I was going to cry. Um, the funny thing was too, so I, I had repeated eighth grade probably because 
I didn't care about anything other than getting high. Um, but I started to notice when I wasn't high in school that my teachers would ask me if I was high. So I was starting to exuberate, exuberate signs of normalcy while high and people were concerned when I wasn't. Um, yeah. And at that time, even in eighth grade, I was smoking before school. When I got on the bus, I, I, uh, would walk down the street to a neighbor's house who would drive me either to the bus stop or to school an hour away. And I was getting high and, um, hanging out with this, this is the Spanish lady. She cracked me up. Um, which is probably even more funny when you're, you're high in ninth grade or eighth grade going to school. But, um, I credit her for getting me on the coffee. She gave me cafe con leche every morning. So already, already down the path of caffeine addiction at the same time, which I still have. Um, but yeah, so ninth grade came to my parents, um, you know, they put me on a antidepressant medication and, um, I actually, for a few months, I stayed away from, uh, all drugs and then slowly they started to creep back in. Um, and, uh, how did they start to creep back in? Were you with your friends or sneaking stuff around the house? Um, like I'd find like paraphernalia and like smoke that. Um, but the friends didn't bother me. I was, I would say the way I used and behaved was like a little bit accelerated, more accelerated than my peers. Um, especially later on in my use, I would more hang out with older people. Um, because they were more at a level of use that I was at than my peers. It, it's funny, some of, well, one in particular of those friends, he struggled in and out of addiction. And I don't know where he's at now, but he was, he did like nine plus stints in various rehabs. Um, but he was quickly, quickly um, kind of out of my high school by mid high school. Um, but he struggled with it a lot. Um, I'm not sure where he's at now. But yeah, so I kept going. Um, I actually stayed away from pot for a little bit at that time. Um, And then something happened in like 11th grade. And um, I, I was smoking to the point that my throat was inflamed and I kept on getting strep throat. Um, and of course, if you're smoking stuff, strep throat really doesn't get better, but I couldn't handle life without it. Um, so I had to get a tonsillectomy and, um, so I got a tonsillectomy, um, and they put me on, um, opiate cough syrup. Um, and one, I remember the feeling of being on morphine and liking it and um, asking for more when I was coming off of being um, under, you know, under the uh, anesthesia. Mm-hmm. And then they gave me cough syrup. And um, I quickly, I had already experienced cough syrup before that and gotten into it a lot. And now I had a prescription 
Um, and two, I was running out quick, quicker than my prescription and able to get more refills um, when I shouldn't have. So that accelerated and something happened. Um, they started to question really what happened was I, I exhibited an break. Um, it was, it was like New Year's Eve or something. And I was using opiate cough syrup and my dad had like, let me have a beer or something like that. And I started talking and I didn't stop. And I was, I was talking crazy and like, I was, what turned out is I was having a, a psychotic episode. Um, and they didn't know why they thought it might've been the anesthesia, thought it might've been, you know, the opiates, they were not sure. And I ended up in a psych ward at, um, that age. And I really was having a hard time gripping reality. Um, they weren't sure if it was like psychedelics I had used before. They had no idea. Um, so high school put in a psych um, ward and it took about three to four days to somewhat normalize and they put me on medicines to stabilize me and I was releasing on medications again and basically they started to think um, that my marijuana use was exacerbating some underlying mental illness. Um, which scared me. I'm sorry. Mental illness. Oh, God. Okay. So, um, yeah, and, and it scared the crap out of me. My psychologist that um, I had when I was younger um, said that, like, I was allergic to it and, and whatever. So um, I started to stay away from it. I mean, in the in the sick ward, I thought like all these people were like friends of mine dressed up in costumes and I tried to escape. Like I was out of my mind. Um, but you know, I got out, I got on medications. The medications made me like hungry all the time and really slow. Um, but they kept me sane, I guess. So I continued on those and I was like, not not going to go there again, not going to smoke pot anymore. Um, so I did, but I did everything else. <laughs> I kept on drinking. Um, I, you know, I eased back into it, but I was drinking. I was using, you know, heavy doses of my friend's, um, uh, you know, um, medications for his ADHD. Um, I was doing okay cocaine, um, doing a lot of drugs and I was maintaining, uh, saneness. I'd stopped actually taking the antipsychotics they had given me at the time. Um, and just doing everything but pot and, um, things were, things were okay. Life was a pretty much a constant party. Um, but, uh, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't getting locked up at that point for, you know, being clinically insane or anything. Um, so I continued that. Um, I started using cocaine pretty heavily. 
Um, I would go on these um, binges where, you know, I'd spend my whole paycheck and, you know, be finding other ways and means to get money. Um, as a kid and not having a whole lot of money, like everybody hates the drug dealers. Most drug dealers at that level get into it to support their own habit, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I got, I started getting involved in a lot of stuff that kids that age should not be involved in, was involved in a lot of really intense situations. Um, and by 19, so I was, I guess I was freshman year in college. I, uh, had my first arrest. I got, I was partying and went out to the beach and got arrested for drinking on the beach and drinking underage. I was, I was with a girl. Um, so I got my first charge there. They didn't even take you in for that. It was just a misdemeanor charge, but I was hanging out with, with, um, an older friend of mine and primarily because he, he used it the rate I used. Um, and about a month or so later, um, my normal connection um, for cocaine at the time uh, couldn't come through. So I drove up to the town north of me to see him. I mean, he's like in his late 30s, I'm nine, 19. And uh, we went to go find some cocaine. And with, he, we couldn't. And so we decided to go get some heroin, which... Um, at that point in my life, I had only uh, got into it a few times, but never had an adequate supply to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went to a really bad area um, and uh, in the town north of me. I'm, I'm from Florida. Um, and we picked it up. And uh, got some needles and he shot, he had been drinking before I picked him up and he shot up, out, up in my car and uh, overdosed in my car. Uh, and I was 19 and next thing you know, I didn't know what to do. I'm driving around, he's turned to blue. I pull over in the parking lot um, and I called 911. And if anybody's out here, I mean, this is pre-opioid epidemic. Um, This was like at the start of it. And if anybody overdoses, call 911. A lot of states have enacted Good Samaritan laws that actually protect people. But a lot of people died because people were afraid to call 911. And I didn't want to do that, you know. Um, So call 911. Pulled over into some random mall parking lot and eventually they came and I found myself in the back of a police car. Um, and we were in a big city. Um, and soon I found myself, you know, in jail, um, with some pretty dangerous people too. I, you know, I was was a rich kid from a private school in jail with some of the, some of the worst people, um, I've ever met. And they told me, luckily, they they were able to bring him back for life. But when I went into jail, they had told me that he could die. And if he died, I'd be in, um, have a charge of manslaughter because the heroin was in my car. Oh, my gosh. Even though it was his? 
Uh, yeah. I mean, it was my car, so it's oh. technical possession. And I mean, at that time, if they really looked at the records, like the money came out of my ATM. Oh. So, okay. So, yeah. I mean, now there's, there's laws in Florida that will protect people from that. But at that time, and, um, yeah. So they actually, I called my parents and I was like, they're taking me to jail. They didn't even know I was out of town. Um, I had the habit of telling, you know, as a lot of young people do telling your parents that you're one place and you're not the other. I think yeah. because a lot of my friends were in the, uh, the town North of me, you know, I would tell my parents I was wherever and they didn't really expect to hear from me much. And that allowed me like the ability to travel. I like, and without them knowing. So I was all over the place at that age. So 19 in jail, scared out of my mind um, because I had a mental health history. They had called and um, told them that. And somehow I got put into uh, the psychiatric portion of the jail. So the cool thing was I got an orange suit, which is actually a good thing because the majority of people are scared of the people in an orange suit because you have your people that are psychiatric or um, red suits are usually murder. So oh. I mean, the the ward was some of the scariest people. So right. nobody like in main areas really, really messed with me, which was good, yeah. um, but still scared of it. Um, so yeah, I got out. I'll never forget sitting in the courtroom and seeing my mom and my grandfather who, who um, was a law enforcement officer in his past and, and who turned out and the guy who turned out to be my lawyer getting me, you know, released and they released me to pretrial intervention. Um, so I went to pretrial intervention at this place um, attended groups every week and I was supposed to have drug tests and for a, a little while, like maybe a, a month and a half, I was doing really good. I, I had my first, you know, taste in the self-help meetings because those were required and I actually loved it. Like I loved sharing what was going on and like drove it. I met some really cool people that were in, in the rooms and um, I liked the community. And a, a friend of my mom's reached out and her daughter was struggling. Her daughter was, was much older than me. And um, so she asked me if I could help and like take her to these meetings and stuff like that. And uh, so I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm doing fabulous. I got like a month and a half clean. If anybody in recovery knows someone at a month and a half clean is very, very vulnerable. So I started trying to help her out and, and very soon I, I began, I got sucked back into that world. And, um, uh, that's when I started like not only snorting cocaine, but smoking it and, uh, that smoking crack. So that escalated pretty quickly for a while. And, um, that's when I met, um, my uh, son's mom and, I don't know how she ever put up with it. I mean, um, I don't, I don't know what her drive was, but, but she loved me at that time. And, um, it actually, as, um, 
things started to get involved with her, I, I got less and less involved with the hard drugs. I was smoking pot again. Um, I had scammed every drug test um, I had for pretrial intervention. They dropped my charges. They're supposed to expunge them, which they did. Um, I got my first taste of, you know, self-help rooms and all that. Um, but I was back in active addiction. I was using, she had no clue how much I was using at that time. Um, but initially we were having a really good time. Um, I was using behind her back though, um, and getting back into cocaine at times. But as, um, things moved on, I, uh, she got pregnant and, um, you know, a lot of people are really freaked out when they have a kid coming. Um, and actually, like, I was excited. I always wanted to be a father. My dad was really cool. He taught me a lot. And, like, that was something I really looked forward to. So as that time grew closer and she was getting fed up with my stuff, I actually, like, got some a little bit of clean time from hard drugs at least. I, um, I, I did at that point have some sort of psychiatric break that didn't last as long. And I went to my, my doctor and got back on some meds and all I was doing was drinking. And I maintained that for a little bit. And then of course, fell right back off the wagon. Um, my son was born, did really well, we moved, ended up moving to another state and I had no family there. And, um, eventually I got back into smoking pot and quickly things turned, started to turn upside down. And after about six months there, like she was done with me. She found out like, you know, I was getting involved in, illegal stuff to supply my habit. And I was, I was telling work that I was out sick when I was going and doing stuff and got fired. And she didn't even know I was fired and I was, um, you know, making money other ways and, uh, you know, living this lifestyle, this secret lifestyle. And, you know, all this time I carried a whole lot of guilt. It's really hard to keep up with lies like that. And, um, so like I was using to deal with it a lot. Um, so we ended up breaking up, moved back down to Florida. Um, my use accelerated for a little bit again. Um, but as things approached and I was getting closer to figuring out child support, we were never, married, but I was going to have to go to court and I was going to have to probably take a P test. And there was no way at that time I was going to pass it. Um, and I'm so worried. And I remember, you know, sitting there had my, you know, somebody else's pee stored in my pants, you know, trying to get past the courts and all this. And, um, it was a whole lot of stress. Um, and luckily we, we figured out something I ended up not even having to, to take a drug test because they knew I wouldn't pass. And, um, 
we set up our custody arrangements there. Um, but after that, I came back home and um, I was just smoking pot and uh, it was 420, you know, the, the pot holiday or whatever. And um, um, we made some, we had some really good stuff at that time and we made brownies and we had like hash and I went on like this spree of eating um cannabis which if you know much about it um it it behaves a little different in your system and um cannabis is classified as both a stimulant and depressant and uh like um a psychedelic in some things and I feel like a lot of those different properties come out when you eat it. I had pretty experience soon, where you had I, an experience. Yeah, where um when I ate a brownie and I remember I had he was my ex boyfriend but my friend at the time and uh, I was a single mom and he had come over. The kids weren't there. They were there with their dad and he had come over and I had a brownie. And I, all I remember is that at one point I was losing my mind. Like I thought he had poisoned me. Um, Mm -hmm. I was convinced he had poisoned me. I couldn't calm down. Like it was horrible. It was such a horrible experience. Yeah. I mean, and, and I had done a lot of stuff, but I had made these brownies and I kept eating them for days. And eating way too much of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's scary. And it's totally different um, thinking on it. And no wonder, like, these edibles could potentially be dangerous to certain people, especially if they had the propensity of that. Yeah. Uh, and um, so I, I started to lose it. Um, and I was exhibiting manic um, signs. I was like up all night. I couldn't sleep. Um, like doing really erratic stuff, like tearing up magazines and putting together weird collages, which, you know, people put together vision boards today. Like this is not that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you were not up all night making vision boards. That's for sure. Uh, yeah, I was like in my closet with the door shut, like ripping up all these little things, you know, like, I don't know, turning into conspiracy theorist. And I got this wise idea, you know, like the stress was so much with my son, with like my ex, my family not liking my behavior, you know, um, work, you know, getting upset with me and in my psychosis, I decided the the best way out was to fake my death. And it was some cockamamie, psychotic plan that would never rationally work. But at the time, I absolutely thought it would work. <laughs> so I find myself um, walking out to my dock at like four o'clock in the morning. We lived in the water and trying to jump into the water and swim under a passing barge and like discard my clothes. And like, I don't know, I had a plan to like take the intercoastal to like down to South America. I mean, it was absolutely psychotic. Um, but then I found myself and I did it naked. I don't know what the deal was there, but I found myself walking back up to my, 
my house and my mom coming out and it's like five o'clock in the morning. She's like, what are you doing? And, uh, cause I had moved back in with my parents after moving back from my exes. And that's when she realized like, Oh my God, like he's lost his shit again. Oh, um, sorry about the cuss word. Oh no, that's okay. No, that's fine. <laughs> so, um, she's like, you, you were, you, you need help. And I was like, yeah, I think so. <laughs> Uh, the cold water at that time in the morning probably helped me realize that just a little. But so I I agreed to go back into the psych ward and I was still out of it. After about six days there, they only can keep you a certain amount of time in the state of Florida. And they're like, um, there's, there's not much we could do. Um, at this point, like he's detoxed off his drugs and he's still exhibiting psychotic symptoms. So they put me in this rehab that was dual diagnosis and started there. They got me back into self-help groups and they're trying to maintain my medications. And I was still like out of it. I think like two weeks in, like I did this weird thing and I tried to like escape and I ended up in some Masonic lodge and like it was psychotic. I was wearing clothes under my jeans in planes to like escape. And I thought the, uh, the president was going to like come pick me up in the helicopter to, you know, hear my, my epiphanies and shit like this. It was, it was nuts. Um, but I was Slowly, after I'd gone through all that, I was slowly starting to at least like regulate my behavior to not do crazy stuff because they almost kicked me out. And um, I was, from the medication, I was slowly normalizing. But then again, something would happen and I would lose my stuff. Like my mom, you know, they had some outing and totally saw some sign that set me off and thought all this crazy stuff. So at, at two months, you know, my, my mom was a complete nuts. Um, at two months, they had a conversation, the doctor and my mom and basically told her they didn't, they didn't think I was coming back to reality that my mind had gotten so twisted that they didn't think I'd ever be normal again. Um, and she was crushed. Um, and I was too, because I I knew too, like I knew that like I hated the fact that people thought I was crazy, but then like when I was in the moment of that, I thought it was very real. Um and then would stop and look back. So there were these moments where I realized um, you know, my behavior was was irrational or my thoughts were irrational. And I slowly started to get that. So after three months in this rehab, I actually started to get some sort of normalcy. I was getting very involved in the self-help groups. And of course they had me like heavily medicated too, um, which kept me out of trouble, but it's not a great state to be in. Um, so yeah, they, they let me go. I couldn't believe it. And, uh, I went back home and they told me, you know, if I was going to do this, I couldn't use anything. And um, I needed to get involved in self-help meetings. So 
like the second day it was a quite a ways away from my house so only say to get to a meeting right away i meet it the next day and it's a huge problem because people you know in a in a rehab you're relatively safe you you get triggered but there's a lot of barriers to prevent you from relapsing um but when you get back to your community it's a little different um so that when i got walking back from my dock i remember it took a while to finally figure out the date but it was uh 4 25 2007 so that was 13 plus years ago um and that was the last time i'd used um and um so i got involved in meetings and like stuck with it i, I did what people told me to do you know got a sponsor and kept going and got involved and it was it was really good. Um, I was able to like keep a job. I kept a job for longer than I ever had. I, I always worked um, when I was younger and through my addiction, I was usually able to work. I couldn't always maintain jobs. Um, and I was, I was really good at working different jobs. Like people always, I always have a lot of experience with a lot of different things. And I had a lot of different jobs in the time I was using. So it's funny. I had a lot of um from dog training to working in coffee shops to construction and building cabinets and all sorts of stuff but um yeah so um started to get clean and normalized i met um what is now my my ex-wife and fell in love and she was amazing um and i guess right around the time i met her one of my best friends in the time i was using you know i left high school and i did the thing all our parents tell us to go do is get in college and i got into college and um pretty much you know partied most of the time the beginning of my college got like three years worth of college and horrible grades um and dropped out basically before my son was born. But my best friend at the time who was also in recovery is like, why don't you go back to college? And I was so scared. I had so much guilt for like just walking away and like how bad my grades were and all that. And he's like, do it. You got like, you probably have a ton of credits. And finally talked me back into going to college. And I went to college um, I applied and oh my gosh, they let all my nonsense go. I got in trouble for the various stuff and like just left school without telling anybody type deal. And um, they let me back in. And while well, I had a lot of majors before that, um, I I decided to uh, do psychology because uh, you know everything I learned, I learned so much from talking to my different therapists and stuff. And for the first time in school, I actually paid attention and I read and I made the best grades I've ever made in my entire life. Like if you look at my total GPA, it's probably under two. But if you look at my GPA for all the classes after I got clean, I had straight A's and mostly A pluses. I blew classes out of water and honestly, 
the majority of it was just reading the book because most people didn't do that. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So it was crazy. And that, that gave me a lot of confidence. Um, so yeah, I got involved in that and, um, I, uh, I only had like, I don't know, like four semesters to finish, to finish with this major. And I was able to pick up one of my old majors as a minor because I had done this stuff. So I ended up with a, uh, psychology major with a minor in graphic design. Um, cause I was a, I was a fine art major and graphic design major before. Oh, and, wow. um, yeah, I, I majored, not only have I had a lot of jobs before I got clean, I did a lot of different majors, building construction management, um, architecture, fine art, graphic design, communications. I used to have a radio show. Jeez, you could um, just do anything, any job you want to do. Uh, you probably have a resume for it. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. It's weird. I I did very well at everything I did. I just never did it for very long before I got kind of honed in. Um. So yeah, straight A's. My my last semester, I did an internship at a behavioral health organization. It was actually the behavioral health organization that I was referred to when I got arrested, and I didn't tell anybody. Um. So I interned there and I rocked my internship. I was, I was going to school full time. I was working full time and I had a 10 hour a week internship and I was rocking that and doing like 13 to 15 hours a week. Um, and I finished my internship hours, like something crazy. I like blue records for the organization. And, um, yeah, so I, I kept interning anyway, um, and a job came up as a um, the coalition manager, and I took it, and it's crazy. I wasn't even finished with my degree, and they were flying me to D.C. to go do this um, Community Anti-Drug Coalitions of America conference on D.C. Wow. Um, so it was funny because, like, you know, I get a job in this and I'm working up and I, I, nobody knew I was in recovery because I mean, now people are a lot more open about it, but like, I was told, like, don't, don't tell anybody that, you know, like mm -hmm. they'll hold it against you. They won't do anything. So it's funny. I kind, of, I kind of felt like a spy most of the time. Um, but I was rocking it. I did very well. Um, when I was working for the coalition, I got really big into trends, a lot of this stuff was communicating to parents like different drugs that were getting involved. This was when like the bath salts first um, became popular and I would, I would dress up in like, you know, a hoodie that I used to wear like two years before and walk into some of these shops and like people trying to sell me drugs and, and sell me bath salts and stuff like that. And I was able to write and also communicate to parents like what it was like to be a teen. Um, yes. And the department I internship before was prevention. So prevention is all first time offenders for drugs and alcohol. Um, so after working for at the coalition, um, I took a job, a prevention counselor 
position opened up. And the thing with prevention in Florida is you don't actually have to have a license. Most people do, or they at least have a master's, but they took a leap of faith. And um, yeah, I, I loved that job. I, um, I, it was a nonprofit, so it didn't pay, you know, hardly any money, but um, as a prevention counselor, working with kids that were first time offenders for drugs and alcohol at the office and also working at an alternative school. And in the alternative school was probably my favorite environment because these were kids that were multiple time offenders or they had distribution charges or um, they had violent charges or, you know, some kid left, you know, some redneck kid left his pocket knife in his backpack and ended up for a weapon at school and he was sent here. But I was with the the worst of the worst kids and I loved them. Um, in every one of the kids I worked with, like I could find some sort of good most of the time and and really help them. Um, awesome. So put a pause on that for a little bit and like my at the same time, I'm developing the relationship with the woman who um, became my wife. And um, we're getting closer. Like I proposed and I was still on a lot of medications. Um, and I was on medications to the point where like they slowed me down quite a bit. And like people thought I was high a lot of times because I was that slow. Um, I, and some people say that I sound high most of the time now anyway, but I'm not, I swear. <laughs> I'm just very relaxed. Um, so she, she said, you know, I want to know you. Um, and I don't know under the meds if that's really you. Um, so I worked with my doctor and I got off the medications. Um, you know, I don't advise anybody to ever drop any sort of, um, mind medications or psychiatric medications, but with the help of the doctor, I did. And the other thing I started doing was exercising. Um, and at that time I was, I was like 215 pounds. And, um, I got my wife, my soon to be wife ran at the time and I couldn't even run a mile and I started running. I get, got into that. And I remembered early on people pushing me, you know, when I was in ninth grade to, to exercise to help with depression. So I got really into running. Um, I couldn't run a mile. I, you know, worked hard to where I could run a mile, run two. And before I knew that, I was running like eight miles a day regularly. Um, so I loved it. I got kind of my high and I got the, the benefits of running and I lost weight. But I, I got off medication and not only was I not having any side effects that had been exacerbated by, by, you know, THC and other drugs, but I felt great. I had all this energy and I was accomplishing stuff left and right. Um, and uh, despite being my ex, like that part of my life and her pushing me to do that was one of the best things that ever happened. Um, I rocked at my job. I went from that department and then they ended up having me start special programs. So I developed a 
Um, it's a, a national evidence-based program that started in Washington, but I implemented it on a college campus. It's called Brief Alcohol Screen and Intervention for College Students. It's a harm reduction program. So I implemented that at a local college. They had me sitting on boards. And meanwhile, I'm still sitting here like, you know, I'm a spy, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, I worked my way up in that organization. I got involved in um, when they got an electronic health record. And next thing I know, I was pretty much running that. And then they made me um, operations manager and director of operations. And over, you know, basically when I left there, I had, I had like done almost every type of job in the company. And I was at the right hand of the CEO. Um, she wanted me to take over. Um, and I probably would, um, but I ended up moving out to, to Arizona and I took a leap of faith in the electronic health record company that I had learned how to implement there and went through the implementation. I got involved in and um, accelerated my career even more there. Um, so, and then, you know, switched to another and, and ended up in this space. Um, but it's, it's crazy. I, uh, I remember on my last day at that behavioral health organization, um, they threw a big party. I was, I was, it felt really good to be that highly respected and come so far. Yeah. Um, and I ended up sharing my story. And I had the whole, I'm getting choked up now thinking of it. I had the whole room crying. Um, because they didn't realize it, but I was in a converted office. In the office I was in was actually the former waiting room to where I sat when I was first arrested at 19 years old. And the office next to me was where I got my first like uh, counseling session and, and, uh, and um, assessment. And at, at that age, when I'd gone in there for that assessment, um, you know, they go through the list of, of drugs you've done in your entire life. And at 19 years old, there's only one drug on their list that I hadn't done, and that was steroids. I was never into steroids. Um, so it was, it was quite the feeling of accomplishment when I left there. Where so... Wow. In terms of, I can't even, Yeah. Oh, that is amazing. I can't even imagine all, all of those people that worked with you and, um, and, and you were there when you were 19 and then where you, where you came and, and the work that they're doing and how much they loved you. That, that is just such a beautiful story. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It felt good. It still feels good. I'll never forget, you know, I was on the new database and, I, and I'd have to go look for old records. And I came across my name in the database, their old database. Now it's like, it's still here, you know? Oh my God. And it was, 
it was past the seven years of holding records at the time, but it was like, oh my God, it's so weird. So. Oh, wow. Wow. Brandon, I just appreciate and admire you so much. I had tears in my eyes uh, a lot through your story and just very much appreciate and admire your strength to share your story even to share your story with me today. Um, I think that I, I totally can relate with how when you're struggling with um, something with your mental health, how worried you are to tell anybody about it because um, they'll think that you're, you know, unreliable, unfit, um, all just all kinds of terrible things. I remember when I was a single mom and I was really struggling, struggling with depression and up all night and self-harming and, and all of this stuff that, um, I was, I needed help desperately and I was terrified to ask for help because I didn't want them to think that, oh, she's unfit and we're going to take her kids. You know? oh, yeah. So people just, they keep it secret, and by keeping it secret, it it just deteriorate, deteriorates you and just totally just eats you alive. Yeah, and there's still so much stigma attached to it. Mm-hmm. Like it's a a lot of people go through it, and not a lot of people share it. I mean, still, you know, um, it's still questionable whether to share share it openly. Um, yeah, I, I mean, was in I was in a, um, a a a couple jobs ago, and worked with uh, a gentleman who he um, had. Uh, oh shoot, I I don't I don't know exactly like clinically what he had, but I, he would get really um, nervous when he would travel, and he would mm-hmm. um, just start unraveling, and so he would have to he would have to travel a certain way to a certain place. He would have to, like, if he traveled, he'd have to have his own car because he needed to know he had a car so that he could get away if he needed to, just like all of this stuff. And I remember he um, traveled for work and he didn't tell our boss at the time that he had, you know, he had had suffered from that. And um, when he got there, he started to unravel. And then um, so he had said that his daughter was sick and flew back home. Well, then he felt really guilty Mm -hmm. about lying. So he went to our boss and said, hey, this is what and I, I apologize I don't remember what it, what it was but he's like this is what I suffer from so it's totally manageable I just need these specific things because at the time like he needed his own car as an example and but our boss was like no it's expensive let's just share a car you know and so he he shared with them this is really what the case is and he was super smart and um had excelled like went up in his career and was a super valuable team member and everything but after he shared that all of his opportunities went away like Mm. he was no so it is it's scary like it's it's because you don't know who how people are gonna take it and that's why i feel if more and more and more people if we just I, I hate using the word normalize because um you know um 
you know, there's nothing normal about suffering, but I guess there is, but just like making it people being able to talk about, you know, um, their mental health openly and freely. Um, if they've, uh, you know, have been abused, have suffered any type of trauma, we should just all be able to talk about it freely and openly and get support and encouragement and love and not, you know, uh, be stigmatized by it. Yes. It's, it's sad and, and, you know, it forces people into going longer without getting help um, or in bad situations. And if if people realized how many others suffered, they would be less, less worried to share their story. Oh yeah. And And that's why I love what you do um, with your podcast. I got to say, you know, doing counseling, I did hundreds of assessments and a lot on um, young girls and the amount of trauma and abuse I came across and trying to work with that and getting the help. Like, um, you know, a lot of them never told anybody their stories and it's, it's so relieving and for them to be able to share and get help, um, whether it's, you know, ends up being punitive for whatever perpetrator or not um, is so important to really be relieving. So the the focus of the show starting out with that is, is a wonderful and needed thing. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, the audience doesn't know. So I know Brandon, but I didn't know his story. And at first, when we first connected, um, the, the podcast was very focused on abuse and still does, you know, still absolutely honors those stories and has a place for those stories. But um, for anybody that's been listening has seen that it's organically become different types of trauma and like everything you experienced would be trauma. I would classify that in struggles because especially even the majority of the people I talk to, even though we have different stories, I can relate with a lot of it. Um, because having that, I used drugs and alcohol to numb, to numb myself. I liked the way it felt because I felt good and I didn't, um, feel as in much pain and, to this day, actually. So if I have a cold, I have to be careful. Um, because if I have a cold and I take NyQuil, I like the way it makes me feel. So I need to be conscious that I'm not then taking NyQuil every night unless I really legitimately need it. And then when I don't need it, that I'm not taking it anymore because I do, I like the way that makes me feel. Cause that was my thing I started with was over the counter Benadryl, NyQuil, mm-hmm. anything that made me, you know, just numbed me and then it escalated. But even to, to this day, and I have to be conscious of that. And I would wanted to ask you my big old long thing. I wanted to ask you too, to this day, um, is it something that, um, as far as like the episodes you were having with your mental health or even like with drugs and all of that, that you need to be conscious and maybe careful of of certain things or in certain situations or, um, or no, are you past all that? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, um, it's like, I gotta be mindful of my mental health. Um, exercise is hugely important. Um, 
you know, I, I don't feel well if I don't regularly exercise mm-hmm. and also like keeping, you know, I, I don't exhibit any signs of like bipolar disorder ever um, since I've been off my medications and stopped using, but I can see like where my mind's starting to spin a little faster and I got to stop and like accept it and know like, I don't need to go on a shopping spree today. Like I should wait and see if I really think this is a good idea tomorrow. Um, so trying to be mindful of your patterns. Um, I notice with, you know, I come on and off of, of substances several times. I knew what a lot of my triggers were and also realized that there was times that were especially hard. So like right before Thanksgiving and right before when summer was starting. Um, so those were really hard. And a big thing for me was like playing the tape all the way through, like my mind plays all sorts of rationale tricks on me and will say, you know, and it, and every time when I relapse, it would start with my mind saying, you know, it's not, not a big deal if you just like smoke a joint at a barbecue, you know? Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, that's not a big deal. Um, but the times I'd say that generally right before summer when barbecues were starting or, or, you know, before the holidays and quickly my addiction would ramp up the pace. Um, same with thing with cigarettes. Like, uh, I quit 10 plus years ago, but, um, I picked up in a pack one time because I wanted it maybe a, you know, four or five months into it and throw it away. It's funny, my my dad, my whole life could buy a pack of cigarettes and before, you know, the weekend, smoke a few and then not smoke them again for like six months. And I just know I don't operate that way. So I pick them up and like right back where I left off, like one, two packs a day within like a week. Um, so I got to know that generally I pick up right where I left off when I pick stuff back up again like that. Um, I've chosen, while alcohol never really gave me many problems in my life. Um, and I, well, I did, you know, get drunk and, and do the things normal people do. And there was a time where, you know, after working construction, I drink a couple beers every day after work. It was never like problematic for me, but I continue to avoid it because, um, you know, I don't want to like tiptoe down that road with alcohol um, because I, yeah. I found when I did that before I was like, I'm already there and I'm not satisfied. This doesn't do the thing I like. Um, so I avoid that. And then the two biggest things in terms of recovery for, for a lot of things I think are helpful and especially helpful for, for me is like exercise and like, you know, treat your body as a temple. Um, and then the other thing is like constantly working on improving something, whether it's little or not, whether it's like trying to learn a new skill or focus on being a better dad or, um, you know, exercise or whatever it may be. I found when I'm not doing that, my mind wanders and gets bored and wants to do stupid stuff. So I think those are the biggest things. Oh, that's really good advice. I used to be really into exercising, but as a young girl, I it was almost like um, 
an obsessive body dysmorphia type, like I didn't eat very much and exercise, like I'm insane. And then, but as I got um, <laughs> older, um, yeah, I used to love exercising and jogging after my last baby. And it was just such a hard um, pregnancy. I feel like I'm starting from scratch. I definitely yeah. need to get back my body literally. And I exercise my whole life. I feel like starting from absolute scratch. <laughs> like I've never exercised in my life. So <laughs> I need to get disciplined and do that. Um, but I can definitely say, I agree with the imp improving yourself. I, I find it, it really helpful to me as well. So I love learning, which is, is lucky for me because I love to study. I love to research. I love to learn. So I'm always constantly doing stuff like that. But if I'm thinking of, um, cause you had mentioned being a better father. So when I get upset, like maybe I lose my temper with my little one, um, I immediately mm -hmm. fall into, it's just, it's a, it's a reaction. It's like my cells, my senses immediately start to go down. I'm a terrible mother. She deserves a better mother. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I'm not a good mother. Um, and then immediately start to feel, um, depressed and the urge to self-harm, which I now, so that's my thing, but I don't cause I'm, I, mm -hmm. I, I've gotten to a place where I go, well, no, that's not the answer, but still the, the, the trigger and the thought is there. Um, but then I, but I don't do it. So I've done a lot of like through meditation and breathing and breath work and all of that to, okay, guess what? It's okay. Let's, let's do what you need to do. And meditation has been a huge thing for me right now so that you respond different the next time and constantly focusing in that on and working on that makes me feel better. It doesn't make me feel like, oh, you're a horrible mom. She does, you know, deserves to have a different mom than you. And it, it makes me, it makes me feel, I don't even know if I'm making sense better with, um, more confidence than I am trying to better myself. And then I do, then I notice that in certain situations that maybe before I'd lost my temper, that I'm really calm and, and I approach it with compassion and love. And so, um, I love that advice. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We all have that. I like to call it my, my itty bitty shitty committee. That's just there and tells me, you know, <laughs> you're an addict, you don't belong in this job or you're a horrible father. Why are you even trying? And, and like being able to acknowledge like, Oh, that's just, it's just my brain messing with me is a huge thing. Too bad we can't, you know, really fire that committee completely, but maybe they have like... Well, they do make some sense, right? Yeah. But. Yeah. yeah. They, as long as they're making you want to do better. Definitely. Brandon, um, I know I said it before, but I really do appreciate you sharing your story with me and with, well, with the audience too. I know... I know for a fact because people reach out to me to tell me about how all of your stories, everybody who's been on the podcast helps them to, to not feel alone, helps them to understand that they, there's hope in a brighter future, in healing, in living the life that they truly want to live. So your story will most definitely make that positive impact. And so I just really appreciate you sharing. And it's, I, go ahead. Yeah. Totally my pleasure. 
Sorry, oh. cut you off. No, ahead. not at all. I um, wanted to know before um, we part ways this evening, if there was anything that you wanted to, any parting words you wanted to to leave with the audience. Oh, just you know, keep on and and you know acknowledge your feelings, and if they don't feel right, you know, get help. Don't be afraid to ask somebody um, to get help. Yeah, I love it. And you, you know, everything that Brandon has been through, so you might be in the same, you know, the same situation that he had been through. And he is, uh, he's an amazing man. Um, He's an amazing person. So are you. Um, He was able after a lot of work and a lot of tries to get to where he wants to be and have the life that he wants to have. And, um, and you can do that too. You absolutely can. And, oh, you know what, before we leave, I wanted to ask you about your surfing. I know you're an avid surfer (laughs) and I hear that people, when they surf, um, it's actually almost a spiritual experience. And I was wondering if that was the same for you. Oh, yes. And, and it's been a huge part of, when I, you know, it's a, it's a mental health thing for me. Um, there's everything from, you know, the, the popping of the little bubbles in the ocean and salt water that is, you know, said to make a difference in your mental health. But um, I've been surfing since I was, you know, very young, six, seven, eight, and it's always been a part of my life and, and kind of spiritual for me in a sense. Uh, at 16, I really stopped going to church and i um i you know now there's the the church of the open sky they call it but um it's it's really my my solstice when i surf i i can think about nothing and become completely centered and balanced and everybody can find a thing like that and it's it's super healing so um not everybody surfing is a hard learning curve so don't go out and try surfing without some lessons but um definitely find find your thing i um yeah i tried surfing once and uh, yeah that was i do i i'm not successful at that but i do find what you were found in surfing i do find that in nature and being out in nature Mm -hmm. and being just the energy of the plants and of nature. I remember when I lived in Long Beach with my daughters, when I was a single mom, we had this one little bedroom apartment, but it was literally, we could put on our bathing suits and take a few steps down onto the sand. And I remember I would call out sick from work and spend, <laughs> and you know, my um, husband had uh, the, the girls that day and I would spend the entire day on the beach, just reading and relaxing and enjoying nature. So absolutely there, it could be anything. It could be knitting. It could be you know, out in nature. It could be anything. Um, I, you can find your thing, like your happy place, your thing where it's, it's a spiritual healing experience for you. And I agree for me, it's, it's definitely being out in nature. It sounds like you too. I just, I just can't surf. <laughs> well, I live in the desert, so I got to find nature <laughs> or everything similar and travel when I can. So, yep. It's wow. out there. Just find it. Yeah. All right, Brandon, thank you again so much. I admire you so much. Um, And uh, yeah, just thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. 
thank you for what you're doing. I'm super, super and flattered to be on your show and appreciate what you're doing. So. Thank you. Well, I hope that you have a wonderful evening. You too. Bye, folks. Bye.